Christian, you are never hopeless. And I hope that psalm teaches you that when you're distraught and when you're worried that the Lord does hear the prayers of his people. There are times when we are distraught where we don't know what's going on or why it is going on, but we must know that uh, the Lord is with us like the theme of that psalm. It's a good psalm to pray when you are in uh, distress. I remember it was a few years ago, I think 2017, when I was preaching on how to pray the Bible, and that's uh, you know, praying the word of God back to him. Um, you're not guaranteed to wonder in your prayers when you pray the, pray the Lord's word. And that, that psalm right there is a great source of uh, comfort for us. And I'm going to pray about that this morning and also um, thank the Lord for this uh, Reformation Sunday. It was October 31st of 1517. So that's over 504 years ago when the uh, reformer uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg church door in Germany to spark um, a reformation that actually and literally changed the world. Because up until that point, you know, they protested against the Catholic church. That's why we're called Protestants. Uh, they protested against the Catholic church, which was the dominating uh, church during uh, the first 14, 1500 years of uh, church history. And uh, so they protested against different things that the Catholic Church was practicing. And um, that led to the Reformation and began the birth of the Protestant Church, which we are Protestants because we're not Catholics. So, um, and we'll learn more about that this evening at our Reformation celebration. But in the meantime, we thank the Lord for giving him and other reformers, uh, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, and others, um, the wisdom to reform God's church and to make it uh, more pleasing with the Lord, especially when it came to justification by faith alone, which was one of the um, protests of uh, Martin Luther, that justification is by faith alone and not through uh, any practices that the church does. Uh, so I want to thank the Lord for giving them wisdom this morning also. So let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning first for your word that we just uh, read in Psalm uh, 87. And Lord, what is what is so wonderful is that you don't leave us without hope. You don't leave us without uh, solutions to our worries and uh, to our uh, distressing situations. Father, you provide your answers in your word. And we're so thankful and grateful that you give us hope that as believers, we are not hopeless. We are not without hope. The unbeliever is without hope in this world, but Lord, we are not. We have the truth of your word. And Father, we just want to thank you this morning for your word. As we opened up worship this morning, reading Psalm 97, we saw your greatness and your sovereignty over creation, how everything that acts in creation, Lord, is, is, an, is a testament to your glory. When we see lightning, when we hear thunder, when we see 
storms roar and the waves of the sea. Lord, all those are giving glory to you as the, the sovereign God of all of creation. And so, Father, we come to you this morning looking to you, casting our cares upon you. Perhaps, Lord, there are uh, members in here today who are uh, distressed, who are gripped with uh, sinful worry. And Lord, we know that worry is the root cause of a lot of stress and other bodily ailments. That, that worry can cause bodily functions to act abnormally. But Lord, worry is a natural human condition. But we should not allow worry and distress to rule our lives. Lord, it can lead to insomnia, restlessness, indecisiveness. It can lead to a deep despondency. And Lord, worrying does not bear fruit in our lives. It does not foster the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, worry can lead to wanting to control our lives and take control away from you. To try to control the outcomes to every situation and every circumstance. And what we actually do is make ourselves God. We replace you with ourselves, with our own sinful minds and our own sinful intentions. And Lord, in our despondency sometimes, we can take our eyes and focus off of you and, and focus on our present circumstances. But Father, I pray this morning that in the midst of our despondency, in the midst of our worries, that we put our trust in you. We don't have to deny our circumstances because they are real. They are actual. They are happening. So it is not to, uh, to not worry. It doesn't mean to deny your circumstances. It does not mean for us to deny our situations. But Lord, it does mean that in the midst of those situations, in the midst of those circumstances, that we trust in you, that we look to you. That we look to you, Lord, that we look to your word, that we get on our knees and that we pray, that we love and serve the brethren, the fellowship of saints, that we not forsake the assembling of the saints together. But Lord, we, we come together in our distress. We come together in our words and, and seek counsel and seek, seek prayer and seek encouragement from those of the household of faith. Lord, Christ tells us not to worry about our life, what we shall eat or what we shall drink or with what we shall be clothed. If he takes care of the birds of the air, if he takes care of the lilies of the field, will he not much more take care of us? O oh, you of little faith, O oh, me of little faith. The very hairs on our head are numbered. Lord, there's not a sparrow that falls from the sky without your knowing. So, Lord, in our deep, dark distress and in our moments of worry, and I mean sinful worry, may we look to you. May we go to you. And, Lord, may your word encourage us to do that. Father, we also pray and thank you this morning for 
the wisdom of the reformers, the wisdom of those who went before us over 500 years ago to earnestly contend for the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints, to earnestly contend for the five uh, tenets of the Reformation, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Lord, we thank you for the reformers. We thank you for giving them the wisdom to reform your church, to declare that our salvation is not by observing sacraments, but by faith in you. And that our faith does not come from observing sacraments, but Lord, that our faith, the very faith to believe, doesn't begin with us, but it begins with you by your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that the reformers fought for the doctrine of scripture alone. That the Holy Scriptures which you passed down to us have given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. That all of life should be guided by Scripture. That all of church life should be informed by Scripture. And that salvation is through grace alone. Your word tells us, Lord, that it is by grace that we are saved it is not of works it is not of anything that we do Lord it is by grace alone that we are saved it is by grace alone that we uh, persevere in the faith and Lord that faith as we said faith alone faith comes from you it is you who gives us the faith to believe we can't muster up enough faith to believe because Lord we are rebels against you and Lord salvation is ultimately in Christ alone as the great hymn says in Christ alone our hope is found it is only in and through the person and work of Christ that we can be saved Scripture declares that there is no other name under heaven given unto men whereby we must be saved. And Lord, lastly, salvation is to the glory of God alone. Lord, you alone deserve glory for our salvation. You alone deserve glory for regenerating us, from taking us from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. Lord, salvation is a miracle because no one can make themselves alive who are dead. Salvation comes from outside of us, from one who is greater than us, the one true God. And Lord, on those five tenets, the the Protestant Reformation set the world on fire. And Lord, you 
empowered men like Martin Luther and Eurek Zwingli and, and John Calvin and uh, John Wycliffe who translated the Bible into a common language and was martyred for making the Bible accessible to the citizenry who was burned alive at the stake for daring to translate scripture into a language for the commoners. And Lord, since those years, the church is continuing to reform. The church is always reforming because the church is always fighting those battles coming from without and from within. Always contending for the truth. So the reformation of the church continues until Christ comes back to redeem his church once and for all, his body. And Lord, may those of us in here in our church and in our sister churches that we've been discussing the last couple of weeks that we contend for the faith, for the truth of God. And we don't allow the wolves to come in and to deceive the sheep as to your truth. Father, thank you. We thank you for like-minded churches that are celebrating this day, this Lord's Day, the 504th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And Lord, as we come to the preaching of the word this morning, as we continue here in Ezra, the seventh chapter, that you fill me with your spirit to preach this text faithfully, that I do your word justice. May I preach Christ with power, and may you be glorified in our gathering this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Man, thank the Lord for his word and for prayer. So let's look at Ezra, the seventh chapter again. We're continuing from last week. Uh, we looked at our first two principles last week. We explained what uh, providence is, what divine providence is. And the first principle we looked at was that God's providence qualifies us and works on our behalf. And we looked at Ezra's uh, genealogy and how providence played in um, his genealogy and the king granting uh, his request and how providential uh, that was. And then the second uh, principle, well, we also looked at the trip from uh, Babylon to Jerusalem, you know, the amount of time that it took for that trip uh, to happen. And then we looked at the second principle, which was God's providence provokes genuine affections toward uh, his our requests are granted. So looking at our passage this morning in Ezra the seventh uh, chapter. Remember, Ezra arrived. This was the second group uh, that arrived uh, after the temple was finished. And this was about 60 years later 
uh, after the events at the end of chapter 6. And Ezra came back. So after Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the Lord, which we looked at last week, the hand of the Lord was upon him. And it reminds me of, uh, if you read the story of Joshua beginning in Genesis 37 through the end of the book, uh, when Joshua was in, in prison, in Potiphar's uh, prison, rather than Potiphar's house, uh, Potiphar saw that uh, the spirit of the Lord was with Joshua. And then Joshua was thrown in prison. The prison guard saw that the hand of the Lord was with him. And when he was before uh, Pharaoh, when he was taken out of prison to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, the scripture says that uh, the Lord, the spirit of the Lord, uh, the hand of the God, the hand of God rather was upon him. So we see in this passage here in verse six. That the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord, his God upon him. So here Ezra experiences the providence of God. The Lord through responsible human agents such as Artaxerxes granted Ezra all that he requested. And this was not done because of anything that Ezra or Artaxerxes had done because remember Artaxerxes was a pagan. He was an unbeliever. But it was according to the good hand of him of the Lord upon him. So I want to reiterate this point uh, from last week. So let's take a look at what Ezra had requested and what the king uh, granted. If you look at verse 14, you will see what he asked. He says, and whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of God which is in your hand. So he authorized Ezra to go to Jerusalem and to ensure that God's law was both taught and observed. So that's what we see in verse uh, 14. And then if you look at verse 25, you'll see where it was answered. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them. So he authorized Ezra to go to Jerusalem and ensure that God's word was taught and observed. He asked it in verse 14, and it's, we see the answer in verse 25. Next, we see that well, uh, as we requested, he provided a generous grant. The king did to buy supplies and temple vessels for temple worship. And we see that in verses 15 through 20. He says, and whereas you are to carry the silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling place is in Jerusalem. And whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, all, I'm sorry, along with the free will offering of the people and the priests are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs, and with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and gold, 
do it according to the will of your God. Also, the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem and whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. So the king had provided a generous grant. And we have to understand something. We, we don't understand this in that context. But this was extraordinary for a pagan king to provide those who don't worship his pagan gods all of these supplies to worship their god. This was, this was very extraordinary for Artaxerxes to do that. This, this was no small task. But you know, whatever the king issued had to be obeyed and followed. But the fact that this pagan king would even do that shows you that the hand of God was on Ezra. Because that king could have said, no, I don't worship your God. I don't care about your God. But the hand of the Lord was upon him. And we see how the hand of God is working uh, through uh, Ezra. The king also commanded the treasures in the provinces to supplement anything else that Ezra asked. Up to three and three quarter tons of silver, 600 bushels of wheat, 600 gallons of wine, and 600 gallons of olive oil and salt without limit. If you look at verses 21 and 22, you will see that. He says, and I, even I, Artaxerxes, the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river. These are all the treasures that are under his kingdom. That whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Up to 100 talents of silver. That's three and a half tons. That's three and three quarters. That's over 6,000, 7,000 pounds of silver. They had to be transported. So just, just... Keep that in your mind. All this had to be transported to Jerusalem. 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, which was about 600 gallons. 100 barrels of oil, which was about 600 uh, gallons. And salt without prescribed limit. All because the providential hand of God was on him. He exempted all temple officials and workers from taxation. We see that in verse 24. Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levite singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, or servants of the house of God. Some people say, look at God. Amen. And lastly, he authorized Ezra to set up a judicial system to see that these laws were obeyed and that violators were properly punished. See that in verse 25 and 26. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, that judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. So this is the thing. They were still under 
the Persian kingdom, although they were in Jerusalem, but they were still allowed to carry on as the people of God and to govern themselves. This was also an extraordinary act by the king. They're under the Persian Empire, just as in Christ's time, uh, Israel was under Roman Empire. They were under Roman rule. So at this time, these Israelites, although they were in Jerusalem, that was still part of the Persian Empire. And everyone that was under the Persian Empire was supposed to honor the king, obey the king, worship the king. But the king gave Ezra permission to set up his own judicial system according to God's law. And why was that? Because the hand of the Lord was upon him. We don't want to miss that. The providential hand of God was upon him. So by generously providing for the people of God to worship him according to his law, Artaxerxes hoped that <laughs> the Lord would be nice to him and his sons. If you look at the end of verse 23, for why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? So he was being very pragmatic. But God uses the king's superstition. Because the king thought that, okay, if I'm good to these people who worship the God of heaven, then perhaps I'll be, you know, he looked at it from a pagan worldview. You know, because the pagans sought to please their gods so that their gods would not be angry with them. So in his pagan worldview, he thought that if he was pleasing the God of heaven, who was the one true God, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created the heavens and earth, that if he pleases the God of Israel, that everything would go good with him. So he was being very pragmatic and very practical. You know, he was a very smart man. He was very shrewd, but he does not realize that God was using his superstitions to bless his own people through Ezra. That God provided. This is, this is how providence works. He thought that he was using God, but God was using him. And that's how God works in his providence. That's how he uses whomever he wills to accomplish his purpose. Even evil people, even sinful people, even wicked leaders, God uses for his glory. He does that. And we must see that even in our circumstances, even on our jobs, even in our nation where we have evil people uh, who think that men can get pregnant and that, and that men can be women and women can be men and that uh, life is not precious in the womb. Even evil and wicked people like that, God can still use for his redemptive purposes. So we, especially those of us who are believers, whose hand is always upon us? God's hand is always upon us. And God's hand is also upon wicked people because he is sovereign over all. He is sovereign over those who don't bow the knee to him. Because he is their creator. He made them. God can turn the heart of the king toward him. And that's what we see here in this passage. That God based, he granted rather, the request of Ezra based on his providence. And so that should encourage us that God uses evil people to accomplish his purposes. He can still do that. 
In redemptive history, God provided the ultimate act of providence to be the once for all sacrifice for the sins of those who would believe. When you think about Christ, when you read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, God used Pilate, he used Caiaphas, the high priest, he used the Sanhedrin, who were the 72 men, the 72 Jewish leaders, and he used the Romans to accomplish his redemptive purpose and provided a way for all nations of the world to worship Christ the King. What did Pilate do? He says, I find no fault in this man. And he turned them over. He turned Christ over to the Sanhedrin, to the, to the Jews. That was all providential. And the Jews turned Christ over to the Romans because only the Romans could execute somebody. You have to understand the, the, the uh, crucifixion on the cross was like a death penalty. It was a form of executing criminals. So the Jews could not do it. Only the Romans could carry out the death penalty. So the Jews, the Sanhedrin Council, the Jewish rabbis, the Jewish leaders, the 72 of them agreed to turn Christ over to the Romans to be crucified. All of that was providential. Pilate was a tool. Caiaphas, the high priest, was a tool. The Sanhedrin Council was a tool. The Roman soldiers and the Roman authorities, guess what? They were all tools used by God to crucify Christ, to bring redemption to mankind. Of course, they didn't know it. As I, as I said last Sunday, no one knows that they're being used by God when they're being used by God. No one knows that. But when you take a step back and we think about your life, think about where you are in your life right now. Go back five years, go back one year, go back 10 years. Go back 15, 20 years and you can see that the hand of God was upon you the whole time. I think about all the stupid stuff I did in high school with my friends and I wasn't a Christian and you know, wonder of wonders that I didn't die. <laughs> okay. Wonder of wonders I didn't get paralyzed from some of the, the, the silly stunts that we did being boys, being wonder of wonders. The hand of God was upon my rebellious life. It was upon your life as a rebel. I could have died in my sins. When I was a teenager. I could have died of my sins when I was in the military. But wonder of wonders. The hand of God used people. To help bring me to himself. And he used people in redemptive history to do so. And under the new covenant believers we have direct access to God the father. The God of providence. He grants our requests. And as Jesus said in Matthew 7. He gives good things to those. Who ask him. 
and he will supply all our need. After Paul collected the offering from the Philippians, and he praised God for it, we read in Philippians 4.19, he says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory through Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what he does. Psalm 34 and 4 reminds us that God grants the requests of his people. Why? Because of his providential care for his own. Friends, we should never doubt the hand of God on our life. We should never doubt it. And I, I, I want to drill in on that because as Christians, we often lose sight of that. When we're worried, when we're distraught, when we're distressed, we can say in our hearts, we may not say it out loud, but we'll say in our hearts, oh, God must not be in this. Remember I said, everything is a God thing. Every moment is your life. Every moment of your life is a God moment. There's, as I was supposed to say, there's never a time when God is not sovereign. There's never a time where God steps off of his throne and says, I'm not sovereign over this season in your life. I'm not sovereign over that situation. There's never a time when God abdicates his duty as king. Abdicate means to, to, to get rid of or to step away from. There's never a time where God abdicates his duty as king and as ruler. There's never a time where God, through Christ, ceases or abdicates his duty of being our high priest. who intercedes for us, who prays for us, who advocates for us. Providence. God had Ezra's life in his hands. The good hand of the Lord was upon him. And Christian, the good hand of the Lord is upon you. And because his good hand is upon you, guess what? He will grant your request. Amen. Our last principle. God's providence encourages the believer to praise him. And prepares us for kingdom work. Look at verse 27, verses 27 and 28. And what do we see Ezra doing after all this? After the king, excuse me, granted his request. He broke out into praise. He broke out into praise. And what did he say? He says, blessed be the Lord God of our fathers. Who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify 
the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. And look at that last part of this verse. So I was strengthened or I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. We see in these verses that Ezra paused to bless the Lord because of his divine providence. In working in the heart of the pagan king Artaxerxes. And for the Lord's mercy to him. So he blessed the Lord for two things. Working in the heart of the king and for the Lord's mercy. And because of God's providence, he was encouraged. And he gathered men to go with him to Jerusalem. So let's take a closer look at this blessing in detail. First, he said, blessed be the God of our fathers. Matthew Henry in his commentary said, we must in everything give thanks. He was referring to 1 Thessalonians 5 and I think it's 22. He says, we must in everything give thanks and whatever occurrences please us, we must own God's hand in them and praise his name. I'm going to read that last part again. Uh, Matthew Henry said, whatever occurrences please us, we must own God's hand in them and praise his name. In other words, whenever we have pleasing situations, who are we to give thanks to? God. Because whose hand allowed that to happen? It was God's hand. That's why he said, blessed be God. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers. Blessed be Jehovah God. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of our fathers. When good does befall us, we are to bless God because it is his hand that is in it. His hand, rather, who is in it. And we praise his name. So to bless God means to praise him, to, to speak well of him, to attribute glory to him. Praise of God, friends, is always in order. It is always in order, in good and as well as evil. But in this context, we're looking at uh, the good. And it reminds me of Job who says, shall men accept good from God and not adversity? All of it comes from his hand. But any good that happens in your life comes from God, and he is deserving of praise for it. Any good that you have accomplished in your life is because of God's hand in your life, because it is him who gave you the, the power, the will, the intellect, the fortitude to accomplish it. It all goes to God. All 
glory belongs to him. Not, oh, well, you know, yeah, I, I, yeah, I did this, I did that, I put that into motion. I said this. That's our default response, right? I, me, mine, my. That's our default response. But no, it goes to God. And then he says, what is he blessing the Lord for? He says, he has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. Ezra acknowledged the divine providence and sovereignty of God intervening on behalf of him and God's people. He recognized it. He knew that it, 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 it wasn't anything that he had done. He was humble enough to know that. He recognized that it is the Lord who rules over kings and that they only can do his bidding. Only kings can do that. Proverbs 21 and 1 says that the heart of the king is in God's hands. It says precisely this. Yep. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. That's why we pray for those in authority that the Lord changes their hearts. The heart of, and we're speaking of kings, speaking of in their context, kings, we have rulers, uh, governing authorities, those in authority. We, we pray that God works in their hearts. Matthew Henry said that God can put things into men's hearts which would not arise there of themselves and into their heads too, both by his providence and by his grace in things pertaining both to life and godliness. If any good appear to be in our own hearts or in the hearts of others, we must own it. We must own it was God that put it there. And bless him for it. For it is he that works enough both to will and to do that which is good. Any good that any person does. It doesn't just show up because we did it. We must own that it was God that put it there. Man, this, this strips man of his pride. This strips us of our sinful pride that any good that we possess comes from us. We forget the fact, the doctrine of total depravity, that, that we are depraved through and through in everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we think. And that any good that we do doesn't come from us. It comes from God. It doesn't come because all people are generally good. All people are not generally good. All people are depraved. All people are sinners. We're conceived in sin. We are not generally good. Go back and listen to the sermon I preached on total depravity a few months ago. 
None of us. The Bible says there's none who does good. No, not one. So any capacity of good that man has does not come from man. It comes from God. Any capacity of good. When I was uh, carrying around my Bible in the seventh grade, I told you all that story. I was, you know, I beat out. I was beat out by Jackie Carlisle for most religious in my seventh grade class, you know, because I, I was a hypocrite, actually, you know. Uh, I was an angel at school and a devil at home. But, but nevertheless, any good that I was doing by bringing that Bible to school was not because of any good that was in me. It was because <laughs> of the Lord. Although I was a hypocrite, it wasn't because of me. Any good that we do, any good that we see, any good that evil people do, it must be God. And that's what Ezra was saying here. God had put such a thing in the king's heart. A pagan king. A king who was polytheistic. Worshipped multiple gods. The, the Persians had multiple gods. Just as the Romans participated in emperor worship where Caesar was Lord. But it was God who put it there. And we ought to bless him for it. And then Ezra continues in his thanks. In verse 28. And God has extended mercy to me. Me, he's speaking of himself. Before the kings, the counselors, and mighty princes. Ezra knew that the hand of God was at work in the king's heart because of his generosity. It is always an occasion to give thanks to God for his many mercies and his grace shown to us. Never, ever lose sight of that. The king could have easily, after hearing Ezra's request, sentenced him to death for even daring to ask him such things. Because that's how those pagan kings were. And that's how kings like Artaxerxes was. But Ezra knew that God had worked in his heart to extend mercy to him before the king. You know, before Esther went before the king, she had the Lord's mercy on her. That's why she was terrified of going before the king. I mean, look what he did to his own wife. Bashti, <laughs> you know, he banished her because she wouldn't put on a show before his royal guests. And this was his wife. And he took Esther, of course, into his, his harem of women. And she wanted to go before him to, to plead the case of the Jews because of Haman's plans to exterminate uh, the Jewish people. And she was filled with consternation, uh, you know, a worry uh, of having to go before the king because how dare you go before the king? You could lose your head. That's what would happen if you went before the king and, and asked him. And of course she went to the king and he said, ask anything you please up to half the kingdom. That's, that's, the, way they, that's the way they greeted them. If they have favor with the king, he would extend his scepter out 
just as he did with Esther, as we're going to, you know, uh, learn the next uh, couple months after we finish with Nehemiah. He extended that skeptic to him, giving her permission to go before him. And ask anything that you please up to half the kingdom. God's mercy was with her because she knew what the consequences would be if the king had rejected her. So that's why Ezra could say this, that God had extended his mercy to him. And whenever God grants us mercy, we should give thanks to him. When he grants us mercy, when things could be worse, when outcomes could be worse, guess what? We thank him for his mercy. Think about getting in a very bad car accident. Your car flips over a few times and, and you walk out unscathed. Yes, thank God for those who built that car with all the safety equipment. <laughs> Praise God for giving them the ingenuity and wisdom to build it that way. And thank him for his mercy in, in you coming out with nary a scratch. You give glory to God for his mercy. Any of y'all ever had close calls before in traffic? You know, and afterwards you like just kind of, ner- I've had them before. Like, man, like you see your life flash before your eyes. Like, Lord, thank you for your mercy. You know, Miss Phyllis, was that earlier this year or last year when you had an accident when, you know, we <laughs> she had that accident and, uh, you know, me and Fran went out there and, yeah. Yep. And, and and the Lord was with her. And, you know, we went out there, me and Fran, and and, and saw it turned over and did it. I'm like, man, she made it out. How? Like, hey man, the Lord's, the Lord's mercy was with her. So when we have those moments, just as Ezra did, he acknowledged the providential mercy of God being with him. And then lastly, <coughs> he said, I was encouraged. He was encouraged as the hand of the Lord was upon him. And so he gathered the men to go up with him. Because of divine providence, Ezra was strengthened. The Lord's encouragement persevered Ezra as he prepared to make his treacherous journey to Jerusalem was a four-month journey. Matthew Henry said of this, he says, this is, this is so good. He says, if God gives us his hand, we are bold and cheerful. If he withdraws it, we are as weak as water. Whatever service we are enabled to do for God and our generation, God must have all the glory of it. Strength for it comes from him and therefore the praise of it must be given to him when God strengthens us to do whatever we're doing for him whatever we're doing for our generation whatever we're doing for the Lord's glory when God gives us strength to do that guess what praise is due to him Lord thank you for giving me the strength to serve in your church to work to your glory, to work my job, to be able to drive to my job, to raise my children, to love and serve the saints. 
to be faithful to my husband or my wife. Who gives us strength to do all that? It's God. It encourages us. When, when God strengthens us, it encourages us, as Matthew said. If God gives us his hand, we're bold and cheerful. When you know that God's hand is upon your life, it gives you boldness. It makes you cheerful and joyful because you know that God is with you. You know that God is with you. And Ezra, he was encouraged. Why? Because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. And we should be encouraged to do the same. Amen. So let's look at our gospel implications here. Ezra, first of all, uh, Ezra came from a foreign land. Uh, he was commissioned by a king of kings to go to Jerusalem. And he was given all that he needed to reform and restore the Lord's people. Ezra is what we call a shadow of the substance of Christ. So Ezra is a type of Christ. He is a, he is a shadow a faint shadow of the substance of Christ. And why was that? Because Christ himself came to Jerusalem with full commission from the king of kings, who is God, his father. And they had all power given to him in heaven and in earth. And it was granted to Jesus the power to redeem man back to God. Jesus himself is the high priest and the chief scribe, just as Ezra was the priest and scribe of God's people. And Jesus gave honor to the father and so did Ezra give honor to God. So, uh, and this is not a stretch to say that, but Ezra was a shadow of Christ. What Xerxes call himself in his letter? He says, king of kings here in verse 12. But the ultimate king of kings is who? The God of glory. King of kings and Lord of lords. Artaxerxes, he was over other kings in his kingdom. But God is the ultimate king over all kings. So these are types and shadows that we see here in this passage. That's the gospel implication of this passage. So as far as applications are concerned, how do we apply? What do we do after learning of God's providence? Number one, we are to labor, to work into your heart a deep affection for God's word. It takes work to do that. It's not going to happen by osmosis. Your affection for God's word is not just going to appear. Okay, It is not going to happen like that. You have to labor to work into your heart a deep affection for God's word through prayer. Through just reading. Just opening your Bible and reading your Bible. And as you read your Bible, you'll want to read it more. And as you read it more, you're going to want to read it more. But you can't 
read your Bible if you don't want to start reading your Bible. You have to labor to do that. There, you know, God works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. We work out what God has worked in us. We, we labor to do that. And then next, we learn to perform all the duties and services for God because God performs all things for us. All duties, all service that we do is to God. Everything, all duty, all service. We learn to perform all duties for the service of God just as Ezra did. Look. Look for Romans 8, 28 through 30 encouragement in all your circumstances. All things work together for good to those who love the Lord, to the called according to his purpose. But it doesn't just stop there. It has two other verses. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is the good that Paul is talking about in verse 28. What is the good? To be conformed to the image of Christ. All things work together for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the context of that word good because when, when many, especially here in America, contemporary Christians see the word good, we put the word our in there. You know, people say all things work together for our good. We, we, we put that pronoun in there that doesn't belong. All things work together for good. And what is the good? The antecedent of good is in the next verse. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Okay? Let that encourage you. Moreover, whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. God justified us. We declare not guilty. When God sees us, he sees his son. He sees the work of his son on the cross and declaring us righteous before him. God sees Christ's righteousness when he sees his saints. That's what he sees. That should encourage us. In all our circumstances, we're going to fall short. We talked about laboring to work in your heart of affection for God's word. We're not going to always do that perfectly. But we're not justified by how much we read the Bible. We're justified by grace through faith. But because we're justified, we labor to do those things. Okay? We don't work for our justification. We work from it. And whom those he justified, he also glorified. We're awaiting our final glorification. We're waiting for that day when we will be with Jesus and we will have perfect bodies. We will be with him. And we will see him as he is, as 1 John tells us. And then lastly, live with praise in your heart always unto the Lord. Friends, God is so worthy. When you get your good grades in school, kids, praise God. He gave you the wisdom to do the work to get the grades. When you get accommodated on your job, or, or, or rather when you get accommodation on your job, 
when someone, you know, praise you for the good work that you've done on your job, praise God for it. It is him who gave you the will to do that work. No matter what the context is, we give glory to God because it is him alone who enables us to do that. So in conclusion, I wrote this little meditation down here. Divine providence is all over our lives and circumstances. Acknowledge it for to not do so is sin and an affront to God's goodness. Always remember that it is the hand of God upon the people of God. That God's providence qualifies us to work on our behalf for his glory. That God's providence provokes genuine affections. And that God's providence is the means which our requests are granted. And that God's providence encourages the believer to praise him and prepare us for kingdom work. So the conclusion is in essence our principles that we learn today. Let us pray before the Lord. Father, we thank you. I pray that the scripture has encouraged us this morning to know that your hand is upon your people. That your hand is upon us. No matter what season of our life we are in. Your sovereign providential hand is upon us. We go through seasons of worry. We go through seasons of struggle. We go through seasons of despair. But Lord, even in those seasons, your hand is still upon us. Lord, help us to know, to cultivate in our hearts that no matter what comes our way, your hand is on us. That you are engineering, that you are superintending all of our affairs. There's nothing in our life that escapes your control. <coughs> Father, may these words comfort us. May they encourage us as we go through the rest of this day and this week. May your providential hand be upon all of us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.